All right, so today we are starting a brand new series. We're diving into the book of Revelation. If you're a guest with us today, don't be nervous. It's okay. We're, we're going to go through this book, and, and over the next four weeks, we're going to go through the book of Revelation. And I know that this is a book that uh, can catch our attention. It really it catches the attention of, of our culture even. Uh, within pop culture, there's, there's a lot of movies that have been made by Hollywood about the apocalypse or, or that has to do with the book of Revelation. There's a lot of books and stories uh, within our culture that the world uses the book of Revelation for its imagery, uh, to, to create different forms of art. Uh, and for many people, just mentioning the book of Revelation can stir up some feelings for us, right? Maybe it can stir up curiosity, Maybe it stirs up fear. Maybe it stirs up confusion or apprehension. Maybe some of you are like me. You grew up in the 90s watching the Left Behind movies. Anybody have a little rapture anxiety because of the Left Behind movies? I remember being a kid and uh, when my brother and I shared a room for a while, if I were to wake up in the middle of the night and he wasn't in his bed, I thought for sure I had missed the rapture. I thought for sure I had missed the rapture because I didn't listen to my parents at the age of eight years old and I had missed it. Now I'm doomed to suffer uh, whatever the Antichrist has for me. So I know that there are, there are things that have been represented about the book of Revelation, regardless if you grew up in church or not. Like I said, it's made its way into a popular culture. There are things about it. There's, there's uh, misrepresentations that can cause us confusion and anxiety about it. There have been countless interpretations of the book of Revelation. And like I've said, it it's has been a source of confusion or, or fear for many people. And I think the reason is because many people will approach the book of Revelation like it's some kind of coded mystery that's waiting to be solved. Have you ever seen like a, a, a big bulletin board, like a detective is working on a case and he's got a red line from this picture over to this picture and this a location here connects to a location there? I mean, a lot of people approach the book of Revelation that way, trying to connect dots with current events and Russia and China. And is this candidate the Antichrist? Y'all following me? So I know there's a lot of uh, misrepresentations. There's also been a lot of predictions there's also been a lot of people that use the book of Revelation to make their own predictions, and their predictions cause more confusion than clarity. I, I know that, and I've heard this story, not that I was, I was born in 1989, but my parents have told me that in 1988, there was a man who wrote a book, that, the, the title of this book is called, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. I guess he realized his predictions were a little wrong because the next year he had another book and it was called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1989. That's a true story. You can Google that. That's a true story. It's funny. I was talking about that uh, with our staff and how uh, this book exists, you know, and there was a, there's a member of our staff. I won't mention their name, but they said, yeah, that's actually the reason that my husband and I got married is because we were so nervous about the, the rapture coming or, or the end of the world taking place because of this kind of prediction that was made. So there's, there's predictions that lead to more confusion than clarity. There's interpretations that lead to more fear than faith. But this is what I want to do today and for the rest of this month as we go through this sermon series. I want us to just kind of take a step back, okay? Okay. I want us to take a step back and I want to lead you 
on a journey of rediscovering what the book of Revelation is really all about. Because it's not a tale of doom and gloom. The book of Revelation is not a cryptic puzzle that is meant to confuse us. At its core, the book of Revelation in our New Testament, the last book of our Bible, it's about hope. It's about the divine promise that good will overcome evil, that light will prevail against the darkness, that God's people will triumph over every adversity, over every trial, every tribulation that we encounter. Do you believe that this morning? So I want to help you understand what this controversial book means so that you can read it and understand it with confidence. And so it, it can be something that, that builds your faith. So let's begin. As we jump into this series, there are three things about the book of Revelation that we need to understand. To lay the foundation for this whole series, there's three things about the book of Revelation that we need to understand. The book of Revelation is, first, a letter. It is a letter written to real people. It's not a letter written to, to people far off in the future. When John wrote this letter, he was writing to actual people that were going through real life situations. They're facing real life persecution. And so before this letter traveled through history to you and I, the original recipients of this letter, the original audience, the people that first received it, who it was written to, they had to make sense of it. And it wouldn't be right for us to skip ahead and say, okay, well, what does the book of Revelation mean for me right now? What's the book of Revelation say about what's going on in Ukraine? What's the book of Revelation say about what's going on in this political turmoil season and everything that we're discussing as a society and a culture? It wouldn't be right for us to jump straight to what does Revelation mean for me without first understanding what did it mean for them? What did this letter, what was its original intent for its original audience? Because I'm going to help you with something right here. This is going to help maybe help the way that you study Scripture, any of Scripture, any of the Bible. Scripture cannot mean for us what it did not mean for the original audience. When we read the letters of Paul, when we read the letters of Peter, when we read the epistles in the New Testament, when we read Revelation, when we read the Gospels, we have to understand that those letters, that those writings cannot mean something for us that it did not mean for the original audience. It was written to them for us. Does that make sense? So just to give you some context about the book of Revelation, it was written by the Apostle John during a time when he was in exile. He was exiled by the Roman government to an island called Patmos. And, and scholars agree that the consensus here is that it was written around 96 A.D. And if you study church history, you'll, you'll discover that 96 A.D. finds the church in the middle of intense persecution. So the church experienced some growth after the, the resurrection of Christ and the apostles went out spreading the gospel. The church experienced incredible growth. But now they were facing persecution from Rome. Like I said, Revelation was written in 96 AD, but in 65 AD came the first wave of Christian persecution from the Roman government under the emperor Nero. 
And as John is penning this letter to the churches in Asia, there's now a new emperor that sits on, on the throne of Rome, and his name is Domitian. And he's carrying out what Nero started in the persecution of the church. So this has been happening for about 30 years. The people that are receiving this letter have been living in persecution from their government for 30 years. I'm 34, so that means if I were alive in this time, I would have grown up in a family of faith, and that's all I would know is persecution. That's all I would know is violence. That's all I would know is hatred. Another thing to know is Peter, Paul, and Timothy, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and then Timothy, who Paul trained, some heavy hitters for the church, people that we have uh, writings from in our Bible, they were publicly executed around the same time frame. So you have to wonder what the morale was of the people. They've been enduring this persecution, the first century church, enduring intense persecution. They're, they're incredible leaders. Peter, Paul, Timothy have been publicly executed by Rome. And just so you know, this persecution goes on for about 250 years. It doesn't let up until somewhere around 310 and 315 A.D. So John is writing this letter in 96 A.D. to a specific group of people, seven churches in Asia within the Roman Empire, that today it would be modern-day Turkey where these churches were located that John is writing to. So just to, just to recap here, Revelation is a letter that had practical, relevant meaning to its original audience. And we must first understand what it meant to them. That makes sense to everybody? Y'all ready for the next part? The book of Revelation is also a prophecy. It's a prophecy. More specifically, it is a biblical prophecy. It fits within the genre of biblical prophecy. And just so you know what biblical prophecy is, it is when God is speaking to his people through a prophet. It's when God has a message for his people that he uses someone, a prophet, to speak his word to them. And as a prophecy, the book of Revelation has a future element to it. There is this future element that is showing us how everything is going to end up. So it is kind of a glimpse into the future. But again, I'm going to help you here. Prophecy is not just foretelling. It's not just fortune telling. It's not just predicting the future. Prophecy is also forth telling. So in other words, prophecy doesn't just have to deal with stuff happening in the future, but it can deal with things that are happening right now. Prophecy can speak directly to the challenges and the issues in the present and give us a snapshot of what the future will be. I know it's really easy just to add the word prophet or prophetess to your Facebook name. I'm just giving y'all some advice. Just be careful who you're letting into your ears, okay? As a prophecy, revelation is not necessarily well, what happens next. I know that's a lot of how in our Western world we study this book as a series of events. Well, what happens next? But as a prophecy, we can't look at it this way. We have to study the book of Revelation with this thinking, what does John see next? Because it's like a series of windows in the book of Revelation that we're allowed just to get a glimpse of. And then we're in one window and then we go into another window and they're, they're not in order. Some of it is related to future events. And then a few chapters later, John's talking about something that happened in the past. 
So we can't think that it's written linear, but instead we're given these glimpses into these different windows. And a lot of times as you read it, you'll see that John says something like, I turned and I saw. That's a clue. This is a new window. Or he says, and then I heard. Okay, this is a new window that John is, is able to see into. But it's not linear. So the third thing I want you to know about the book of Revelation. First, it's a letter written to real people that had real meaning for them in that day. The second is it's a prophecy that talks about things that are going to happen, but also things that were happening at this time. And the third thing is it's an apocalypse. Apocalypse, a scary word, I know. It has a lot of connotations. It's got a lot of baggage in our culture. Or if you grew up in church, the word apocalypse. But more specifically, what I want you to know about the book of Revelation is that it is considered apocalyptic literature. The style in which it is written is called apocalyptic literature. And the word apocalypse, that's actually where we get the word revelation. That's, word, that's what the word revelation means. Apocalypsis in Greek, it just means an unveiling or a disclosure. That's what apocalypse means. That's what revelation means is an unveiling or a disclosure. John opens up, he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? This is the unveiling or a disclosure of Jesus Christ. And what does what, what is, what is apocalypse and apocalyptic literature do for us? It shows us that, hey, you might see one thing. It might look a certain way from here, but there's really something else going on. It might look this way to you right now, but there's actually something else that's going on behind the scenes. So instead of telling the story straightforwardly, like you and I would want, apocalyptic literature uses dramatic images. It uses symbols. But it's not meant to be a puzzle. It's a vivid way of expressing a message that's beyond everyday words. It reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that we might see flesh and blood, but there are rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that might look one way, but really there's something else going on. Apocalyptic literature is a tool that helps us understand what we see is not what is really happening. And John is writing to a group of people who are having their teeth kicked in by Rome. And God says, during the middle of all that persecution, God says, hey, John, I want you to peek behind the curtain. Hey, John, I know it looks like the beast is winning, but the lion and the lamb are victorious, John. Hey, John, I want you to come up here and see it from the perspective of heaven. And in apocalyptic literature, people are often represented as animals. Historical events are represented by, by natural phenomena like earthquakes or floods. Colors and numbers have meaning. Revelation, like Ezekiel and Daniel, parts of Isaiah, Zechariah and Joel, the prophets of our Old Testament... Revelation is full of imagery, and this imagery is meant to inform our minds and ignite our spirits. And I know this can be confusing for us. It can seem complicated. Why? Because you and I, as, as Western, modern-day Americans, we are not an image-heavy people in regards to how we learn. We just want the facts, right? Just tell me the facts. Just tell me the details. What do I need to know? And so when we're presented 
with information in a style like this, we can look at it and say, what are the facts here without understanding what apocalyptic literature is? Does that make sense to everyone? Is this okay if I teach you a little bit just to kind of set the groundwork here? Let me make it real for you, okay? I'm going to give you an example of apocalyptic literature just so you can, can understand this. Revelation chapter 12 says this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it may devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, how many of you would believe me if I said, that is our Christmas story. That is, an angel showed up to Mary and said, you're going to be with a child, and there was no room in the inn, so Joseph and Mary had to find a manger. I know it's a lot different than Silent Night, right? A woman crying out, a dragon waiting to devour the child. Hey, why not just say that Mary gave birth to Jesus? Why not just say that they beat the mess out of the devil? Why do you have to say it like this? Because imagery goes beyond our intellect to our emotions. I mean, listen, here's the story. Mary heard from an angel that she would conceive a child and that child would be the Messiah. And when she was giving birth, there was no room in the inn. So they found a manger where Jesus was born. There was a sign in heaven, a star over Bethlehem that guided shepherds and wise men to Jesus. Or, and there was a great war. In heaven, the dragon awaited to devour the woman and her offspring and to make war with the lamb and his people. But the lamb protected his people and drove the beast into the wilderness until the people of God conquered. That imagery just provokes our human spirit. You're telling me there's a dragon that's trying to kill my family? There's a dragon that's coming after my children. There's a dragon waging war against my king. It stirs us up. Apocalyptic literature, it provokes our spirit at the deepest level. It informs our intellect and it charges our emotions rightly. We're not driven by our emotions. We are driven by what is true. And apocalyptic literature just tells us what is true in a way that gets into us in a very different way. But we didn't learn that way, like I said. We didn't, we didn't learn that way. We just want the facts. But they're both facts, aren't they? Mary did give birth to Jesus in a manger. And there was war in heaven. And the war wages on. 
And we find ourselves in the story, in this war, even today. So apocalyptic literature does two things. I'm trying to help you here to understand this book that can be so misunderstood. Apocalyptic literature does two things. It anchors us in the present to show us a picture of unseen realities in the future. So it wants us to be anchored in the present. The present world that we're living in, our present life, the present situations that we're dealing with, and not get lost obsessing about what's going to happen in the future. It grounds us in the present and shows us a picture of unseen realities in the future. But also it does this, apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, it shows us the unseen realities of the present. You can't just read it thinking about, oh, this is just something that's going to happen in the future. It's showing us unseen realities that are happening now. And so the book of Revelation, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to show the churches in Asia that John was writing to and to show us that things are not as they seem. If we don't understand the reality of what's currently going on, we could pick the wrong enemy. Our enemy is the dragon, but if we don't understand what's really happening in our world today, we could wind up picking the wrong enemy. We could wind up thinking the Democrats or the Republicans are the enemy. We could wind up thinking this group is my enemy, this country is my enemy, unless we see what's really going on. The early church, if they didn't understand the realities like John was telling them, the realities of what was happening, the early church could have thought that the Roman citizens and Rome was their enemy. But I want you to think about this. Rome wasn't their enemy. Rome was the harvest field. Rome was where there were lost people that needed to meet Jesus. And if they didn't understand the reality of what they were living in and living through, they would have looked at everybody as the enemy. But by 351, by the year 351 AD, there were 350 million Roman Christians. Christianity went on to become the official religion of the Roman Empire because they understood what we see is not really what's going on. So Revelation is a letter, a prophecy, and an apocalypse. Okay, I've taught you a little bit. Now you ready to jump in? You ready to jump in? Okay. Today we're going to pick up reading through Revelation 6. And just to give you context about where John is as we start reading, John is in the throne room of God. He's given a glimpse. We're looking through this window with John. He's given a glimpse and he's able to see this, this vision. He is in the throne room of God and in the throne room, we sang about this just a moment ago, at every location he sees elders bowing down, throwing their crowns before the Lamb. And there is a scroll that John sees in the throne room. There's a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. In this scroll that John sees is the secret to everything. All the answers to all the questions that humans have ever asked, the answers are in this scroll. Everything that we need to know to make sense of the world is in this scroll. All the answers to why the churches in Asia that John is writing to, why are they facing this persecution? Why has all of, these, all of this happened to them? Why are they in this hopeless situation? The answers are in the scroll. The scroll can make sense of everything. 
And John wants to see it. He wants to know what is written in the scroll. What are the answers to all these questions? What are the, what are the answers to these problems? But it's sealed with seven seals and John can't open it. He's not worthy to open it. He doesn't have the power, the ability, the knowledge, the wisdom. He is not the one that has the power to open this scroll. And the Bible tells us that John begins to weep. It's as if he's writing to these churches in Asia and these Christians that are facing such persecution. And he's saying, I wish I had the answers, but I don't. And as John is weeping, one of the elders tells him, don't weep, John. Don't weep, because there is one who can open it. This elder tells John, there is one that can open it. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And John, he turns expecting to see a mighty lion. And instead he sees a lamb that looks like it's been slain. It's a whole different message I could go into right here. How many of us are looking for Jesus to be our lion and to show up and win the culture war for us when we should be looking for a lamb that's ready to serve and sacrifice? The lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And the lamb begins to open the seals. And as he opens them, just so we're tracking, the lamb that looks like it's been slain, that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that's worthy and able and strong enough and powerful enough to open the scroll that has the answers to everything. He's the only one that's worthy. He begins to open these seals. And as he opens them, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are revealed. Now remember as we go into this, this is not just telling us about what's going to happen someday in the future. It's telling us about what is happening in John's day and in our day, what's happening right now. The horses are not just going to ride. One day, the horsemen are riding. The horsemen are riding. Revelation chapter 6 verse 2 says this, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The white horse. Of these four horsemen that we see here, the white horse is unique because he wears a crown. He sets out as a conqueror, one that appears mighty and powerful. He even carries a weapon, a bow. And when you read the book of Revelation, you'll realize that this white horseman looks a lot like Jesus. In Revelation 19, we see a picture of Jesus as he returns to earth to establish heaven on earth, the second coming of our Messiah, and he looks a lot like this. He's riding a a white horse. He's wearing many crowns. He's also carrying a weapon, a sword. He's got an iron scepter. So this white horseman looks... A lot like Jesus, but he's really just an imitation savior that has no power to save. Y'all following me this morning, Friendswood? And it's important for us to know this. Revelation does not say anything that hasn't already been said in Scripture. What we are reading in Revelation, the Scripture I just read to you in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus already said that. Jesus talks about the end times in Matthew 24. His disciples ask him, Jesus, will you tell us what's, what's going to happen in the end of time so that we can look for these signs? And in Matthew 24, 
we see Jesus tell about the end times, and it's really just a mirror of what we're reading in Revelation. What's the difference is John is using apocalyptic literature, okay? I'll show you. Let's go to Matthew 24 so you can see what I'm talking about, okay? Jesus answered and he said, watch out that no one deceives you in the end. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. John talked about it in his other letters. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 say this. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Listen to this next part. Which you have heard is coming. Yes, there is coming a figure, the Antichrist, that is going to lead people astray. But he says... Even now, even now, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. Listen, if it was even now back then, it's even now, right now, the spirit of the Antichrist. John talks about it more in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. He says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver And the Antichrist, the white horseman of the apocalypse, represents the spirit of the Antichrist. The white horseman is something that looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, but it's not Jesus. The white horseman will make you think that God just wants you to be happy, not holy. The white horseman will make you think that Jesus votes just like you do. The white horseman looks like salvation through social activism. Looks like salvation because I'm on the right side of political issues. Looks like salvation from my own moral righteousness. Well, I'm just a good person as long as I'm a good person. By the world's standards. The white horseman doesn't call us to repentance. He tells us we're perfect just like we are. Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. But the white horseman says, wide is the gate. Broad is the the road. And we live in a world where you get to have your own truth. Where there is no absolute truth. That your truth can be whatever you feel and whatever you've experienced and whatever you want. And the white horseman is riding. There is a way to follow Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus. Church in America in 2023, there's a way that looks like following Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus. And it's easy for us, church. It's easy for us to start looking at the world and pointing to ways that the white horseman is riding through through worldly philosophies, through social political activism and through through all of the things that we look around the world and see people are placing their hope and their trust in, we can look and say, oh, that's the white horseman right there. It's easy for us to look at the world and say, oh, well, Russia or or China or or Democrats and Republicans or or these tech gurus or the multi-billionaires of the world, we can look and say, oh, there's the Antichrist. But I want you to know, Life Church, that the Bible is much more concerned about the spirit of the Antichrist that is inside the church than it is concerned about the spirit of the Antichrist in the world. First John, when he writes and says, be aware that no one would deceive you, be aware of the spirit of the Antichrist, he's writing to the church. 
He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to people that, that are in the world. He's writing to the church, telling them, be aware, be on guard against the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a way to believe in Jesus without believing in the Jesus of the Bible. The white horseman is riding, and many of us are content with looking the part and talking the part, but not living it. The white horseman loves it. The white horseman loves when we say we believe the Bible, but we're putting our hope and trust in astrology and zodiac signs. He loves that we say we're Christian, but instead of turning to prayer, we're turning to crystals and burning incense. We sang about let incense arise. I want you to understand that's talking about our praise. It's not an incense we, we like to get rid of evil spirits. The incense that God wants is our praise. The, the praise of our life comes up before him like an incense, like a fragrance. And it can smell really good or it can smell really bad to God. The white horseman, he loves that we'll wear a cross as a fashion statement, but we never actually pick up our cross to follow Jesus. The white horseman, he loves it when we jump and shout about prosperity, but the fruit of the Spirit is absent in our life. There's a way of following Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible because the horsemen are riding. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword, the red horse. This is war. And Jesus talked about it, like I said. Jesus has already spoke about it. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. I mean, did you read what the red horseman does? He's come to take peace from the earth, to turn people against one another. And Jesus said, yeah, you're going to hear about these wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The red horseman, this, this war horseman, is a spirit of violence and rage. It's the, it's the willingness, the spirit to destroy one another. And it's not coming one day, it's here. The horsemen are riding even now. The red horseman shows up on our social media feed. Why are people so mad about one thing one day? And then the next day they're mad about something else, whatever's in the news cycle. It's because the red horseman is riding. The red horseman is the reason there are rage rooms where you can pay some money to go let out your anger and frustration and destroy things. Why is there road rage on I-45? Because the red horseman is riding. I think he's camped out right at 610 going on to 45 I guess you'd be coming from west side of 610, going to 45 South. That is the worst place. I hate that merge right there. And if you are somebody that cuts to the front of the line, repent today. <laughs> Fix yourself. Jesus' name, the red horseman is riding. The red horseman is what makes us destroy one another. And that can happen through war and it can happen through words. And it won't just happen one day, it's happening right now. And what does the red horseman do when nation is not risen up against nation? Which there's always war happening at some part of the world. There's war right now happening. 
But what does the red horseman do for us? Maybe we're not involved in an actual conflict, not you and I. Maybe our service members are. What's he doing for us, the red horseman? What's he doing to us? He's stirring us up. He's taunting us. He's aggravating that rage in the hearts of men. So maybe we're not caught in an actual war. Maybe our minds and our hearts are at war because the horsemen are riding. Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Listen to this next part. And do not damage the oil and the wine. This black horse is famine. And Jesus talks about it. Matthew 24 and 7. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. The black horse is the spirit of famine. But it's a very specific type of famine. The original readers. The people that John wrote this letter to. They would know this. That they needed wheat and barley to live. Can you put Revelation 5 and 6 back on the screen, or Revelation 5 so they can see it? Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley. I mean, why, why is it so specific that they're, they're withholding the, the wheat and barley, but not the oil and the wine? Because what you and I may, might, may not understand, but the original readers did, is that you need wheat and barley to live, but oil and wine are a luxury. So there is a type of famine where you have an abundance of what you don't need, but a scarcity of what you do need. Are you with me, Life Church? We have an abundance of social media followers, scarcity of real friends. There's an abundance of sex in the culture, scarcity of intimacy. The black horseman withholds what we need but makes sure we have things we don't. We have an abundance of junk. Withholds purpose and fulfillment from us, but gives us Netflix and fantasy football. Withholds nourishment for our soul, but gives us plenty of podcasts with our favorite comedians. Withholds intimacy and joy that is found in marriage, but there's plenty of pornography. Why is it free? Because you pay with your soul. This is a famine of the soul. It's an abundance of what we don't need. A scarcity of what we do need. Our stomachs are full. Our minds are numb. Our soul is starving. We worship a game. We isolate ourselves from people. And we ride high on the Instagram dopamine wave. And we go to bed every night unfulfilled and depressed. Because the horsemen are riding. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, sword, famine, and plague. And by the wild beasts of the earth, the pale horse. You look at the original language here for the, the description of pale horse. It's talking about a color that is yellowish green in color. It just so happens that that's the official color of, ew, gross. Right? 
That's the spirit of plague. It's the spirit of sickness. And you and I, we're on the other side of a COVID pandemic, but what about the mental health in our society? We're in the middle of soul sickness, a plague of the soul. And the generation that's coming up has more mental health struggles and more mental health issues than ever before. And we can sit back and blame the other side. And we can sit back and say, well, it's because of this ideology or this philosophy or this group or this leader. But the truth is the horsemen are riding. Things are not what they seem to be. And the four riders are a reality across human experience everywhere. Always they are riding. Religious persecution, natural calamities like earthquakes, and and we know what it's like to go through hurricanes. Those are bound to certain times and places. We're not facing persecution, church, here today in America. In the first century, Christians were being dipped into vats of oil, strung up in the city and lit on fire as a human torch to light the city because they were Christian. The government was doing that. So those things happen across the world, throughout all time, it's happening. But the four horsemen are universal for all of us. We might have enough to eat, but our soul is starving. We might not be fighting in a war, but our hearts and minds are at war. Y'all tracking with me? Let's continue reading the story in Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. This is just a continuation. The horsemen have come. The horsemen are riding. There is chaos that's following them. The Bible tells us that then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, listen to who it's naming. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, everyone, both slave and free, everyone, everyone hid in caves among the rocks and the mountains. They got so deep into the mountains, but it wasn't deep enough. They called to the mountains and the rocks, just fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? Oh, the horsemen are riding and we can't stand it. We can't stand this chaos. Who can save us from the four riders? Our politicians promise a better future. Armies right now are being built and mobilized. People are seeking wealth as the answer to their problems. Celebrities and influence, the influencers, they sway people in what to think and what to do. And the horses are wreaking havoc. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't know how much more of this I can stand. I don't know how much more of the division and the craziness of this world I can take. Who can withstand The Bible answers that question. Who can withstand? In John's very next vision, after the horsemen are riding, bringing their chaos to the world, and everybody experiences it, and no one has answers to it, the Bible answers who can withstand. John's very next vision, he's back in the throne room, and he sees a group of 144,000 people Uh, I want you to understand, remember how I said in apocalyptic literature, 144,000, how numbers have meaning? This number, 144,000, represents completeness or countless. It's a group of people who are complete. It's God's complete number of people. 
Now, again, because we're Western, modern Americans, we'll read that, and some people will think, oh, so there's only 144,000 people making it to heaven? I want to know why they keep knocking on my door, because I might take their place. <laughs> hey, if, if there's only 144,000 people making it, I'm going to sabotage some of you. I'll just let you know. <laughs> but it's talking about a complete number. All of God's people. All of God's people. John turns and sees Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. Later on in that, in that chapter, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people in language, standing. What were they doing? They were standing. Who can withstand? Well, this group was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. They're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, the horsemen are riding. That's what they do. But I know the one who is victorious. Eugene Peterson, who authored our message translation of the Bible, he was speaking about this multitude of heaven that we see here in Revelation 7. He says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil in Revelation 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are set alongside extravagant praise in Revelation 7. He says, Christians sing. They sing in the desert, they sing in the night, they sing in prison, they sing in the storm. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. Who can withstand those gathered around the throne? And this is not a book of doom and gloom, but I am here to tell you that things will get worse. Things will get worse not better. So, how do we stand? How do we stand? You can stand with me this morning, every location. The horsemen are riding. It's chaos. There's famine. There's war. There's hatred. There's violence. There's sickness. There's plague. There's mental sickness. How can we stand? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says this. They triumphed over him, the enemy. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how we stand. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They were bold in their faith. We stand... Anchored in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Armed with our testimonies and our experiences with him. We face the chaos of the horsemen. Not with fear, but with unyielding faith. Knowing that the one who conquered death itself stands with us. Yes, the horsemen are riding, but so is the lamb. And if he's on our side, there's nothing that can defeat us. Not division, not confusion, not fear, not deceit, not anxiety, not anger, not disease, not sickness, nothing. So how do we stand? Put your faith 
in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't rely on your own knowledge, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own understanding. Don't. Don't. You'll lead yourself astray. Don't rely on our politicians and our leaders and and our influencers and the wealthy and the people who have great ideas and great podcasts. No. Put your hope and your faith in Jesus. Depend on Jesus. We usually will end with a call to action, helping you take your next step in faith. Well, how to stand? It has to start here, putting your faith in Christ. And I'm not just talking about in a way where it's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm okay with Jesus, I'm cool with Jesus, Jesus is my friend. I'm talking about Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. You can have every part of me. Search me. Search my life. Help me, Lord, to leave things behind that do not honor you, that you don't have for me. Help me to leave those things behind so I can walk in your ways, in your path. Make Jesus your Lord today. And he he is your friend. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your teacher. But he is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one higher than him. He holds all authority. Everyone has their communion elements. This is the first Sunday of the month. We're going to do communion today. This is how we're going to end and close the service. How do we stand? By the blood of the Lamb. The word of our testimony. That's just us reminding ourselves and reminding people and telling people, how is it that you can stand? It's because of Jesus. Because I used to be this way, but now I'm this way. Because Jesus walked into my mess, walked into my situation, and he transformed everything about me. And now, yeah, the horsemen are riding. I've got peace. I've got joy. And I'm singing in the storm. I'm standing and singing in the storm because I have Jesus This walk with Jesus that you and I have, this this faith that we are called to, it's not all kumbaya and lovey-dovey and life is easy. It's hard. There's chaos in the world because the horsemen are riding. We find our peace and our victory in nothing else but Jesus Christ. Go ahead and peel back that first layer of your communion. Every location. This represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and I. His body that he willingly laid down to be beaten, ripped apart, and crucified and broken for us. On the other side of that suffering, he knew was our salvation. And he willingly laid himself down for us. We do this today in remembrance of our king, the lamb that was slain, the one in whom we have victory. Let's take this now. washes us clean. His blood that washes away all of our sins. This blood is the reason why we can stand around the throne. His blood is the reason why we can stand and sing in the middle of chaos. His blood is the reason why the world can say, are things ever going to get better? I wish I was just dead. But we can be standing and singing about the Lamb 
Jesus has spilled his blood for you and I. Let's take this together. I've asked the band, the team at every campus that after I pray for you here in just a moment, I'm going to turn it back over to Houston, League City. I've asked them to go back into that song, worthy of it all. It's singing about the book of Revelation. It's talking about what's happening in heaven, how people are laying down their crowns, worshiping the lamb, worshiping the king. So let me pray for you. And we're going to end one more time with singing that song and the campus pastors are going to dismiss you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that in you we find peace. In you we find strength. In you we find wisdom. In you we find joy. We find fulfillment, Lord. And while the world is going crazy, and while people are arguing and fighting, and while there's rioting and division and hatred and fear and anxiety and depression and despair, in you we are anchored. In you we find abundant life. In the middle of a drought, we can have abundant life middle of a famine, we have abundant life. We worship you and we exalt you, Lord. We worship you and we exalt you in our life. We don't want this to be something that we just do on Sundays where we come in and sing the nice songs, but Monday through Saturday we're living as our own Lord. No, we exalt you in our life. You are the Lord of our life. There's nothing off limits to you, God. You have access to every part of who we are, every thought that we have, every habit that we have, every word that we speak. I pray that you would rule over those things. Lead us, guide us, protect us, be with us. You are our only hope in this world of chaos. You are our only hope in the middle of calamity, in the middle of pain and suffering, in the middle of hopeless situations, in the middle of things happening that we wish we had the answers to, We can lean into you, Lord, and we don't have to understand. You give us peace even when we don't understand. And we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.